Let's, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your goodness to us and we're grateful for this faith in you and your son that um, is the kind of religion that you can communicate to us and think with us and guide our thoughts. And we'd ask that our thoughts this morning would be guided in your son's name. Amen. We're looking at James chapter 3. Now most of you who are at all biblical know someone says James 3. You know, it's that part about the tongue. Yeah, it's the earlier part of James 3. But largely the section about the tongue, which everybody gets a little convicted by because we all step into it with our mouths in some way. And then you start to study that bit on the tongue, you realize that James is concerned about the teachers of the fellowships of the believers, the people who, like Evan, who stand up front and just talk, and the danger that that is. Language itself is just almost a miracle. You just, the idea of making barking noises into the air and somebody else with those same barking noises codified as certain meanings knows what you're saying. And we, we, we package the things we say up into truth concept, you know, uh, claims, truth claims, and try to offer them someone, some guide to a better life by saying true things. We, the reading that, that um, um, Jake had this morning out of Second Peter about St. Paul writing the things to you that are hard to understand, which the wicked and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. We know how risky this process is. Because when you come to a church, when you come to a church, there's this sort of grant. There's a tacit, okay, ceremony's going to start. He's going to start talking. i got to sit here. I can't just storm out. We know that we're granting a certain thing, where we're risking a lot. You're risking your future. Your mind could be bent. What if I was uniquely, uniquely engaging today? And say I didn't pick on Nate at all. And, I, and, I, and, and you, you scooted forward on the pew because you were excited to hear what I was going to say next. Because it was, it was, it was coming off my tongue. I was, uh, I, I was golden-tongued, like Chrysostom, you know. And so, so just say for the, for the moment, this is kind of hard to imagine, but say, in that golden moment of rhetorical glory, I was wrong. <laughs> hard to imagine, I realize, but there I was, being wrong wonderfully. It's a risk. You know it's happening all over Christendom this morning. People listening to wrong people who were trained to be good at it. Good at expressing it. You go to seminary, and I didn't, but if you go to seminary, you have classes on homiletics. That means how to hold the Bible, you know, so it's floppy, so you can preach like Billy. You know how to pronounce things. There's that pastoral unction to the voice that you say, ah, oh, that sounds just like a pastor. We're in the business of risking our mental health every Sunday. Risking our spiritual health every Sunday. Putting ourselves in the hands of some 
potentially schmarmy guy who we just say because he's our denomination and we'll risk this. It's kind of an important thing. How big a ship is turned by such a small rudder? That's what James is dealing with in the early part of James 3, which is not on your sermon notes. But what that raises is a contrast. Because if you're, if, if all these warning flags are going off, say, Evan, would you mind if I stormed out of here? Well, not at all. Hurt my feelings. We're, we want to know what we are looking for if we're not looking for rhetorical brilliance. If we're not looking for making us feel comfortable within our theological confines. The question right at the top of the page in James 3.13. It's almost to be phrased, who? So, who? If all these things can go wrong with a tongue, and that's what was going on there, the last verse in verse 12 was, so no more, no more can salt water yield fresh, speaking of the tongue, and then he says, who is wise and understanding among you? You just go, so how do I, so if language, if teaching, a Bible study, a, a church, a seminar, a conference, whatever I'm going to, my concerns ought to be to not roll the dice so flagrantly. It's like dating somebody who's known to be a lady killer. Known to be. Do you, do you think you're going to be able to separate his protestations of eternal love for you when he's protested the same eternal love for many others. So who is wise and understanding among you? It gives you a wonderful definition. Something you want to look for. Something you want to see. By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That's a description The person who ought to be in the ministry, and you can get this from other teaching about qualifications for ministers in Timothy and in Titus, they ought to be people for whom the work of the Holy Spirit has, what shall we say, worked. They ought to have been people who have found great satisfaction in the Christian life. So much so that they possess what you would call a good life. And the things they do represent that good life and represent a meekness of their understanding because you're looking for someone with understanding. Because a lot of people, there's a lot of tricks to convincing other people that you know what you're talking about. Some of these tricks have been named after me. Just want to warn you. You've heard of basically informal fallacies. You can't do this, you can't do it. What's an ad hominem? Well, they named a few arguments after your pastor. One is Evan's high horse. <clears throat> uh, one is Evan's bludgeon. Now, let me describe those two forms. You can be on the alert for them. <coughs> Evan's high horse is when I bring out social superiority as an argument against my opponent's position. 
it has nothing to do with your societal standing, but uh, if you just remind them that you were raised on the East Coast and they were not, they, they feel suddenly socially uh, manipulated. That's, that's one. It's not valid, but it works. Um, Evans' bludgeon is when I say something absolutely unthinkable to everything you hold to be sacred and right and true since your mom told you. And he says the exact opposite. And you get so worked up that you lose all ability to frame an argument. Um, let me give you an example. I don't want to give these things away, like trade secrets. Uh, Oh, I, I've done this to enough of you, so you know. When, you know my views on Satan, you know, you don't know. Uh, say I was in a situation in which someone talked about, this is a standard thing, the, the snake in the Garden of Eden, and they speak of it as Satan, and I inform them that it doesn't ever say in the Bible that the snake was Satan or demon-possessed. And they look at you like you denied one of the center tenets of the faith. You say something so wrong to every emotional frame of the person that they get, they don't know where to go with the argument. They don't know where to So I think this is what Donald Trump is doing to the media right now. He is saying things that they, 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 people aren't allowed to say. And they rebuke him for saying it, and he says, shut the heck up. And they, and they don't know where to go. Where do you start the argument if they don't play the game? So it's a popular, it's a, but name for me. Not outside of Moscow, but. So what are, you, what are you doing here? You have a responsibility to look at the state of the church and not be part of the problem. This is a section on the state of the church. Not the state of unbelievers. The unbelievers, are, of course, are messed up. But the believers... But if you, verse 14, have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and I put those, I played a little bit with Adobe here, centering and breaking lines so that you wouldn't miss these words. Bitter jealousy. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, you know what you should want, the wise and understanding that I've had a good life doing the works that are representing that good life and a meekness of their wisdom. Meekness. <laughs> Does it? Usually someone gets smart enough, scholastic enough, trained enough. Meek is the last word you would describe them with. Especially if in the, they're in Christian work because they all want to get all muscular about it. They call it muscular Christianity. James calls it bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. If you have them in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not what Christianity... Tragically, that's a description of about 2,000 years of Christendom. Everybody fighting. And you're then told you've got to pick sides, pick a team get down to business of that theology because that's the only place the deeper walk is. Because we're the important people. 
Do you know some of the most, I won't mention names here because I won't embarrass anybody, some of the major names in Christianity back in the centuries killed other Christians that you would think were other Christians because they didn't know they were other Christians, didn't think they were other Christians and thought they should be killed. Just like St. Paul running around breathing threats and murder about the Christians, these people of our theological frame, say Protestants, killing other Protestants. Let alone killing people who weren't Protestant, be they Jews or Catholics or just pagans. It got pretty bad. But boy, you read the histories of the church, and of course, if it's inside your denomination, it seems like the guy who founded it walked on water. And it wasn't Jesus who did walk on water. But because we're all in the business of living according to this jealousy, what is jealousy? Something else, someone else having what you think is yours. And boy, go into the ministry. If you want that feeling, or you know, maybe the last time you felt it, you were 14 and you were in love with the 16-year-old captain of the cheerleaders. Not that I'm relating a really personal story here. And she was also the president of your youth group at church. And somebody else started to date her. Well, she's mine. Well, no, nah, she's not. You're 14, you're an idiot. But she's mine. And people who are in the ministry, even a small church like All Souls Christian, pastors go home wondering if that sermon is going to go viral. And all of a sudden, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be famous as a pastor for Jesus. It'll all be for Jesus. But no. You look at other ministers, you look at other people succeeding, and it becomes a bitter jealousy, especially if you start to see your ministry not grow, but decay. You see, you see desperation. You ever see a desperate romantic trying to do last-ditch efforts, try to win her back? One of my worst moments, I'm going to share this with you because you like personal stories. One of my worst moments, probably the worst moment in my life is when my girlfriend dumped me. Not this one, but uh, a previous girlfriend. And I thought, I mean, I proposed to her to get her back. I, my pride was so hurt. I proposed to a girl so she would come back most. Thank God she didn't. Smarter woman than I. But uh, you, get, you, get, you get crazy with bitter jealousy. Someone else getting what you think is yours. Or selfish ambition, if you're, you know, the person who's on the losing side of the equation feels bitter jealousy, that motivates. On the winning side, you're a little bit more muscular and successful. Things are clicking, things are happening, ministries are popping up with your name on it. The Evan Wilson Evangelistic Crusade. Selfish ambition. It matters that your name is attached to it. You don't want no credit. It'll, it'll cause a desire to boast and be false to the truth. Not be what Christ wants of you. 
You want to be sure that what all of Christianity has held out and said, look, look what we're doing. We're making bitter jealousy and selfish ambition work for Jesus. Let's all be a part of this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Uh, He says, this wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. So the wisdom that says, hey, you want to get on board with the happening new whatever movement, or the happening old movement that's getting new traction, let's be part of our divisive Christian functioning, rather than having the meekness of wisdom and a good life. Which proves that you have wisdom of God and understanding. But the wisdom of man, the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish, it produces it produces this. It produces the kind of ministries that are a disgrace to the truth. Now, I was looking at those words, earthly, unspiritual, devilish, and I tend to look things up because that's what computers do for you. Unspiritual is not a real good translation. I think uh, one of the other translations, NIV, might have sensual. That's a little bit more real. I think unspiritual and devilish? Aren't devils spiritual? Aren't they? The word is demon there. Uh, uh, demonic, the actual word. Well, we're not talking about someone who is denying spirit, you know, is. No, he's involved in spiritual things. But it's what it is, is natural. It's sensual. Not as contrary to metaphysical. Not in contrary, but different place. A different way of looking out of your eyes. A way of life that is earthly. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be, ah, like it's a prophecy, disorder in every vile practice. The Christian church today, if you spend any time on the Christian internets, in other words, enough of your friends on Facebook are Christians that you get this feed of what's going on from the liberal end of things to the conservative end of things, and you begin to realize that Christians are in a, a crisis of identity right now. That's why I'm talking about this this morning. Is this crisis of identity. What are we supposed to be like? They're dealing with it. On one hand, they see all the namby-pamby, happy-clappy evangelical churches that you just want to hurl, and the men don't feel like being there because it's all posing as men. Well, I'm hunting. Okay, And then you get these churches that are filled with really masculine guys and the testosterone is just filling the room. But they don't treat their kids or their wives very well. It's not nice people. They're all big about some aggressive theology. We get disorder in every vile practice. It's kind of crucial that we... Because there's not going to be a ministry that steps up and goes, okay, everybody out of the pool, we've got to fix this. We've got to clean the pool. We've got you know, enough chlorine in the water. We're going to get this church thing worked out here. There's, there's all sorts of problems. 
There's dysfunctional churches of, of authority. There's sexual problems in churches. There's theological problems in churches. There's, there is just people being bitchy towards each other in churches. That's a disorder. It's a vile practice. And it's because the Christians have been told that no, we want you to be on board with the Jealousy Ambition Project. But then he describes the wisdom that is from above. The wisdom that isn't is earthly, sensual, devilish, and it produces selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and results in disorder in every vile practice. Now we want to know who is that wise and understanding, the person who have a good life, meekness of wisdom, what does it look like? Oh, he has a list. And I played with centering and breaking the line up. And, but it's from above. And what is that? I, I, maybe I'm pressing the point too much. When you say it's from above, where else would it be from? You, or the diocese, the archbishop, who, what's it, we have a singular, necessarily correct voice if we say, I'm going to go with the wisdom that is from above. Otherwise, there's disorder in every vile practice because everybody is picking their own, their own best judgment. And your own wisdom, have you stopped and checked to see your own wisdom? Not, you say, Evan, don't you believe in freedom of the will? Yes, but don't be wrong. Okay? Freedom of the will means that you could be right and you could be wrong. Don't be wrong. Being right is not you wonderfully agreeing with you. You know, when I think a thought in the tub, okay, usual tub time, think a thought, looking for paper, there isn't any. I just have to dwell on the thought. And I'm amazed at my thinking. Just flat out amazed. I feel like a nimbus, of, a, 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 a soapy nimbus is sort of standing out from my head. Who is this man that can think these things? It must be true. I'm thinking it. Pretty pleased with myself in my tub time. That's not what makes something right. The fact that I thought it and I was in my tub and I had a halo. That doesn't mean anything. Halo is pretty cool. It's got to meet certain requirements to be wisdom from above. Remember, a lot of smart people have had bathtubs and they didn't agree with me. They didn't think the same things. I have a smart guy coming over regularly now as a new rhetoric prof, that's dangerous, at NSA, also dangerous. Nice guy. We agree about a lot. We disagree about a lot. He's another smart person who probably has a tub or a shower in which the halo appears and he thinks of thought. How are we ever going to tell? Because we're just one of the 320 million souls who think you're right. 
Because it's you. You have a love affair with you. We love you. At least the guys do. The guys love ourselves. It's got to be first pure. Opposite of that would be what? Impure? It's got to be yeah, sort of clean. Doesn't have your bitterness or your selfishness mixed in with your motives. Your motives are in question here because remember the motives of earthly, unspiritual, and devilish wisdom are dirty. Not dirty in the sex sense, dirty, but just dirty. Then peaceable. <clears throat> it's almost like selfish ambition and bitter jealousy a fight's got to break out. They got to fight. Peaceable, as far as you are able, live peaceably with all men, it says in the scripture. That you are seeking not disruption, you're seeking a good life. Well patterned, brought to order, gentle. There's always those guys who are doing any demolition in some situation. They want to get a sledgehammer. They want this to go fast. They want to get a sawzall. They want to take this thing down now. Which in a church, uh, a church situation, not beneficial. They don't want to, people who want to jump in, just tell the person they're wrong right now. Tell them where to get off. Tell them to repent. Gentle. You know what that is. People need to repent. But I need to be gentle. What does it say in Galatians? If any brother is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Yeah, we're supposed to restore one another. Yes, we're supposed to get repentance, but not with a sawzall or a sledgehammer. Gentleness has got to be, if you want to claim, not the wisdom from the earth, but wisdom from above, not just the wisdom that matches your temperament. And you don't want to claim gentleness if you just happen to be Casper Milk Toast, just kind of a namby-pamby individual anyway. I'm just so, so gentle. No, you're a, you're, you're a weakling. You want strong people to be gentle. You want spiritual people to be gentle. You want the people who might be in another situation, tempted to be too rough with the situation, able to be gentle. If you're just a china doll, you're not gentle, you're fragile. Open to reason. Ah, there's a good one. Because the meekness of wisdom, remember it described it up above, the meekness of wisdom is something that understands the potential conceits of man. Conceits of the person holding the view that are being represented. Not open to being always being wrong. Not always saying, well, I could be wrong in them. Open to reason. Open to someone bringing a truth claim that's sustained. 
You're not holding merely for the sake of your ambitions or merely for the sake that it's you versus them. You're not going to hold a wrong position. You want to be right, not you. Has it ever crossed your mind that you really want to be you most of all? Less, less right, more you. And the position has to be sustained because it was you who sustained it. Full of mercy. And understands, that's the person who understands what God has done for you, right? You love others, you can't stop loving others. The love that you received, the mercy you received, you want to pass on. If you're full of God's mercy, why would you, having been forgiven such a great debt, not be? And good fruits, doesn't list what those are. Things that happen good around you. And then I like this, because it, you know, it, it, it sounded like, golly, pure, peaceable, open to reason. This guy doesn't have any opinions. That's, why, that's how he manages to keep that. Well, it doesn't really matter what you think about eschatology. doesn't matter what you think about freedom of the will or determinism. doesn't matter what you think about blah, 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 blah. Again, like the gentleman is not fragile, he's strong and gentle. The open to reason, the wise man, has come to conclusions without uncertainty or insincerity. How do you, how do you live with this kind of um, position? You can be certain and open to reason. Now there's a... Uh, <clears throat> a um, A quality, I guess, that's, that Lewis talks about in his essay, Obstinacy of Belief, where he says belief is the psychological exclusion of doubt, but not the logical exclusion of dispute. You need to be open to the logic of the matter, the proof of the matter, but in your position, you have the certainty of a person who holds a position, sincerely holding it. And look at the result here, the central verse, this is the verse I wanted you to remember, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now break that apart. It's not just a wrapping it up spiritual way of saying things. You've got to avoid that. And sometimes breaking up a text like this so you look at every word the translators translated and say, what does the syntax mean? The harvest of righteousness, the thing that we're looking for out of the church of Jesus Christ in this world, and out of each of us, is sown in peace. You harvest righteousness from having sown peace. By those who make peace. There's a lot of people, dang hippies, who are talking about peace all the time. Back in my day, they were making peace signs all the time. So Doug and I would run around and do this, which meant war. Um, or this, which was victory is viable in Vietnam. We were not peaceful people. But they, uh, they want to talk about peace all the time, but they're not the kind of people who make peace. To whom peace matters. Somebody to whom peace matters 
sows peace. And righteousness is harvested in that circumstance. It suggests that it's possibly not harvested in other circumstances. So as those who are contending with other believers all the time, they are not interested in making the peace. The only peace they could conceive of is everybody agreeing with them. Again, the conceit of that, the ambition of that, the selfishness. And this is what, that was the preceding to this passage that's famous in other circles, what causes wars. Richmond Lattimore has it in his translation. So what causes these hostilities? Because he's talking to the church. He's not talking about the UN or ISIS or the problem in Syria or whether we should go to war, did go to war in Afghanistan or Iraq. We're not talking about international policy. Nor are we condemning war. So what causes wars? What causes fightings among you? You've got this conflict going on, and primarily I want you to think of it as personal, churchy conflict. Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? That's the opposite of peace, is you know, peace and war, right? You're either the kind of person who makes peace, so you sow peace and you harvest righteousness. Or you're the kind of person that wars erupt out of. War is not bad. I, I, again, I apologize. I like war. I like the history of war. I like the study of war. Wish we went to war more. Okay. But I got some, maybe some emotional problems. God is not against war because icky things happen. You know? There are some people that think God is against sex because icky things happen. Some people are really afraid of pain or someone dying. Someone they love. Dying in a uniform somewhere, fighting an unnecessary war in Southeast Asia. That's not the moral problem here. James is concerned with, isn't it your passions that's the problem? They're at war in your members. You desire and do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. The problem is not that someone gets hurt. The problem is that someone was living by their passions, their wants, their demands, their jealousy their earthly expectations about what they should have in life. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The problem is, we're all complete tools. We want, I always quote Al on this, I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now. That's what everybody's motive in life is. I want what I want. Oh yeah, I'm not a bad person, like a rapist, because I don't want something that badly. Sort of, but other things I might want something that badly. 
But when I want it, it's what is right to want. Our passions, our government of ourselves is guided by what we want. We desire, we covet, even when we, we finally figure out, oh, maybe if I ask nicely. Yeah, but my motive is still me. Unfaithful creatures. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself centered an enemy of God. Boy, James is not being really friendly this morning. This is friendship with the world. The word is friendship, philia. Various, both in one, the one line and the next. One is philia, one is philios. Friendship, you know, like you have a friend. And that's what you've got with the world. What could be wrong with that? It's not like we're having sex with the world. That's not bad kind of love. No. It's not the friendship, just like it's not the war that's the problem. It's not the war that's the problem. It's your passions, your coveting, your wanting, you being center of it. The problem is not that you have a friend. Can I have my own friends? Can I pick my own friends, Jesus? Well, as long as it's not the world. Because what does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean? The word has to do with uh, a companion. They use it in the scriptures for one who uh, stands up a uh, uh, best man at a wedding. That's your, the, he who stands with you in the moment, the friend who's your companion. You are a companion to this person. You're not lovers. You are not family. You're a affiliate, friend. C.S. Lewis, in his essay on friendship, talks about it's the person you finally meet that looks at the same things the way you look at them, stands next to you, your companion, who sees your world, and you want to see what you're into together, whether it's football or, or classical literature or whatever it is. You love those people. You get to share this time. And in this case, you found out that the earthly, unspiritual, and devilish perceptions are what you wanted to stand next to and look at the world through those eyes, because that's how you see them. You are a friend of the world. You're a friend of that which decides that the world be taken in by passion. Every wickedness in the world holds the same philosophy of life that you do. Every evil, every evil act, same philosophy of life. I get to have what I want, don't I? Let's all stand together and get what we want for most of us and we'll put the rest of them in jail because that just kind of creeps us out what they're into. But we want the same, we want this exact same privilege given to me. I want what I want. Friendship with the world, enemy of God, says the Lord. Or do you suppose it is in vain that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. That's Why is it odd? Remember where we have been in this passage. Didn't it just back in verse 14 of chapter 3, but if you have bitter jealousy, 
And here is God yearning jealously over the spirit he made to dwell within him. You know, in thinking, in thinking, I recommend that you do so. That you go, hold it. Bitter jealousy. God being jealous. Even says in Corinthians 13, love is not jealous. God is jealous. Just like war. Just like friendship. It's not war or friendship or even jealousy that's the problem. It's a matter of who's jealousy. Say <clears throat> you, you run into a situation, a marriage is falling apart, a wife is being cheated on, and she's jealous of this other woman. And then you meet the other woman at Rose Hours, and she's complaining to you because of the time she doesn't get to spend with her boyfriend because of his wife. She's jealous. Who's better? Well, the wife. Why? It's her husband. She really possesses him. The mistress does not. The mistress has a perceived possession. It's who owns what. Your bitter jealousy, this isn't yours. Is it God's? Well, yes, it is. So he yearns jealously over the spirit which he made to dwell in us. It's his. He gave you the Holy Spirit of God in Christ to live out your Christian life. And here you are saying, just a moment while I go here, stand by the world and live as if I were friends with passion. I was friends with living life, meeting my own urges. Especially in the life of the church. Especially when we're designing church ministries on the basis of who's the most eagerly, selfishly ambitious. But he gives more grace. He said, oh, thank you. Thank you, Evan. You finally came around to saying something nice to the saints this morning. God gives more grace. God, God is for us. We, we broken people. Therefore it says, and it quotes Proverbs here in the Septuagint, God opposes the proud. You know what happened? I used to have that verse here actually typed in the side and I must have erased it accidentally. Proverbs uh, 3, in the Septuagint, not in the, if you look it up in your Bible, it's not going to read like this. You have to look it up in the Septuagint. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Oh, that's not quite the grace we want. We want, you know, grace that allows you, kind of like the non-Christians define Christian love is supposed to be, well, if you loved people, you wouldn't object to the lifestyles they lead. Um, excuse me a moment. Oh, yes, we would. Love and grace doesn't mean you get to be and continue to be that agent who needs the grace. We all need love, we all need grace, but grace is received by those 
who are humble, not those who are proud. Okay? So the person who persists in whatever wickedness they're in, whatever kind of, in this case, it's churchy, bad attitudes, you don't get to keep that. God will be forgiving towards you in your def definition of Christianity, your definition of the way the church should be, or the work of the ministry of the kingdom of heaven, whatever it is, and whatever other sins you might be carrying around, if you humble yourself to him. And then he wraps it up. You say, thank you, Evan. Would you please wrap it up? Yes, I will. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Therefore, submit. Not submit yourself to more of you, the way you want it. Not just try to straighten out your ideas so that you can still submit to you because you've got your ideas straightened out, but you really want to submit to you. You're going to submit to God. You're going to submit to God when God says something you don't quite agree with. Emotionally, spiritually, whatever. You're going to resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Submit, resist, draw near to God. You're going to see what the devil is doing. You're going to see what God is about. You've chosen sides. You know who you submit to. You're going to actively do something that someone else could measure as, you know, he or she is drawing near to God so much these days. It's good to see. Drawing near to God. Anybody describe you that way? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you men of double mind. You've got to fix. You've got to take what's wrong in you. Not just the positions, not just the attitudes, but the sins you did. The sins of your mind, the sins of intention. And you've got to go get cleansed. You've got to go get purified. Take them to the Lord. He is gracious to the humble. Well, I don't think I should have to do that. Well, then start being humble. You'll start to think you have to do that. The humble person says, you know, I probably owe them an apology. Yes, you do. Not because God wants an apology, but he wants to see whether you're humble. Has your knee bent at all in his direction? Because the last thing, got the submit, you have resist, you have drawn near, you have get cleansed. And I put here at the last, realize it. Not bring it into reality, but you realize it in your mind, the state of things. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. Now, I'm a big fan of rejoicing. Not because fun is fun, or rejoicing is right, but rejoice in the Lord always. And he is saying, these people are rejoicing in their ambition, their jealousy, they're having it their way, thinking like the world, getting along with the world, standing with the world and its passions, and viewing the world through passion. And they need to realize what happened, submit, Confess, resist, draw near. And realizing it brings a real state of dejection. What have I done? Not because we're supposed to be living a life of everybody show up next week all kind of sheepish and depressed. 
Ah, oh, great church. Everybody's depressed. No, because to humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You want to be rejoicing in the light. You want to be rejoicing in the Lord. You want to have this goodness of God. You want to be a friend of God. You want to have the wisdom that's from above, not from, of your own devising. You want to be created into this good life. That's the point of rejoicing. We're not just trying to cheer everybody up. We're trying to introduce them to the Lord through whatever crucible of redemption and confession and getting right they need to go so that they can be exalted on the other side. Let's thank him. Dear Lord, we're grateful. We're very grateful. In your son's name, amen.